0: friends, welcome back to The Journal Feed, my name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoonfed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're here to spoon-feed you the latest research. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. First off, we have part two on our series on leadership, this time focusing on emotional intelligence. After that, picking the best antibiotics for diverticulitis. Then, getting the O2 targets just right in COPD. After that, from the fourth article, we have return rates in low back pain patients given opioids. And then finally, the best way to thoracotomy. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the priceless Clay Smith. And so now I bring you the first article, which was titled Leadership Essentials for the Chest Physician, Emotional Intelligence, out of the journal Chest. So now here we've got another post, which actually follows up on last week's post, which was part one on leadership. Here we have part two for you. And this time we're going to focus all on emotional intelligence. So this might sound a little bit frou-frou. I know things like this used to in the past. But honestly, the latest bent in medicine is really taking care of our own mental health and trying to prevent burnout. So let's start off with a definition of what emotional intelligence is. So this is pretty much gonna be verbatim from the article. So emotional intelligence is the capacity to understand your own emotions and those of others around you with the goal of bringing positive change to the people you influence. This is actually relevant to, to you, to me, to everybody, because having emotional intelligence is actually associated with better patient satisfaction, lower burnout rates, lower litigation rates, and even better leadership success. In fact, there was a study by Feist et al that followed 80 UC Berkeley science graduates for 40 years, found that emotional competencies were fourfold more important than their IQ in determining their professional success. So this is something that we'd all like to work on and probably should work on then and just try to be mindful of. So the authors of this study actually picked out four key domains of emotional intelligence and then had a few things to say about them. We'll have a summary right here. First of all is self-awareness, just paying attention to what you're feeling. We are all of us, all of us, emotional beings. Those emotions affect us profoundly, altering the way we think and the way we act. This can be for the better and sometimes this can be for the worse. Don't go it alone on this one either. Everyone has blind spots as to exactly what their emotional responses and sort of triggers and weaknesses are really going to be. So if you've got a trusted friend, have them help you to point out what you might be missing. Second, we have self-management. After awareness comes actually doing something about it. Proactively learn to control negative emotions that can be hurtful and disruptive, and then flame the positive emotions and keep them strong and positive and helping towards your goals. Professional counselors can help with this, of course. And then there are a multitude, a myriad of virtual help solutions as well, given, you know, this COVID age. And so there's a bunch of resources that are out there in abundance if you're keen on it. Then we have the third one, which is the social awareness. So beyond ourselves are our patients, our friends, our colleagues. When we can recognize the emotional state of others and share their perspectives, then guess what? We're empathizing. If you can do this, then you can read the emotion in a room or even the emotion in an entire institution. So remember that the goal of empathy is really to try to serve those around you. When you're able to get in touch with that, then sometimes a lot of decisions actually become a lot simpler. And then lastly, we have relationship management. Now, I think this is probably the most rewarding part. Recognizing the power of emotions in ourselves and others and then using that to inspire others, build camaraderie, strengthen teamwork. And of course, it's also useful for lots of other things like trying to share your vision of something or persuading people. And thankfully, it's even helpful in conflict resolution. All right, so in a spoonful, emotional intelligence empowers you and those around you and can even directly benefit you. And then next we have the second article, which was titled The Comparative Effectiveness and Harms of Antibiotics for Outpatient Diverticulitis, Two National Cohort Studies out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Lately, there have been many investigators looking into not using antibiotics at all for diverticulitis, but that issue isn't settled yet and it might not apply to all patients. So if you are giving antibiotics for diverticulitis, then fluoroquinolone plus metronidazole is often a pretty popular choice for outpatient diverticulitis treatment. We know, though, that fluoroquinolones have a few nasty associations with them, like tendon ruptures, hypoglycemia, altered mental status, the probably not aortic dissection, QT prolongation, and even sudden death. With all that in mind, maybe if we had another option, it wouldn't be so bad. So this study was a retrospective study of a national claims database, where they were comparing using fluoroquinolones plus metronidazole to giving amoxicillin plus clavulinate for outpatient treatment of uncomplicated diverticulitis. So the fluoro plus metro option was used most of the time, 82% of the time. And over the next year after treatment, there happened to be no differences in hospital admissions, need for urgent surgery, or the risk of C. difficile colitis when comparing the fluoro plus metro group to the amoxiclav group. In Medicaid patients, so we're talking about a slightly older cohort, those usually over 65, then the risk of C. difficile was a little bit higher in the fluoroquinolone group, but all the other outcomes were still the same. What this means is that you might be able to consider forgoing what might be possibly a harmful treatment, and then, you know, switching over to the very familiar amoxicillin and clavulinate. So in a spoonful, a Clav compared to a fluoroquinolone plus metronidazole was not associated with worsened outcomes for outpatient treatment of diverticulitis, and it may even spare what could be a harmful treatment. Which brings us to number three, oxygen therapy and inpatient mortality in COPD exacerbation out of the emergency medicine journal. Well known is that in patients with chronic CO2 retention, most likely going to be mostly COPD patients, but not all, that a lower oxygen saturation target is typically appropriate, since higher than their normal oxygen levels can actually cause VQ mismatch, which can result in oxygen-induced hypercapnia. And this hypercapnia may lead to worsening acidemia and even in-hospital death. To combat this, places like the British COPD guidelines recommend a target oxygen saturation target of 88 to 92%, In those with chronic CO2 retention, in those without, you can target something more like 94 to 98%. Now, we've already spoken about trying to get to that Goldilocks zone of oxygen saturation on the podcast before. And we mentioned that the LOCO2 trial found that a low PaCO2 target was associated with harm in critically ill ARDS patients. Can the same possibly be said for COPD patients? This study was a secondary analysis of a large prospective data set which was collected for the DCAF score. And in this data set were 2,600 patients admitted for exacerbation of COPD, of which 1,000 needed supplemental oxygen, and this is the group that we're interested in. The group with the lowest inpatient mortality, and this is the group, of course, that we want all our patients to be in, was the group that targeted a oxygen saturation of 88 to 92%. The adjusted odds of death when compared with a higher target was nearly two times higher if that target was 93 to 96% and nearly three times higher if the target was 97 to 100%. These results were similar and statistically significant in the normal Kaepernick group as well. So it's worth keeping in mind that this data was not collected for this purpose, so there is a higher chance of confounding, but the data is still quite compelling. In a spoonful, in case you need another reason to target COPD patients' oxygen saturations at anything other than 88-92%, to 92%, then here's another great reason to do so. It even decreases inpatient mortality rates. We have a nice graph that's included in the blog from the study, and it looks pretty compelling. So wrapping that up, we have the fourth article which was titled, The Relationship Between Pain Management Modality and Return Rates for Low Back Pain in the Emergency Department, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So despite the growing pile of evidence that the use of opioids for acute or chronic back pain or really just honestly any musculoskeletal complaint is just, just don't prescribe opioids. Opioids do not seem to have any better efficacy than non-opioid options and they come with significant risks of harm and long-term use or misuse when used in this scenario. So because it's probably still needed, here's yet another reason not to give opioids for back pain. This was a retrospective multi-center observational study which was performed across 21 community and academic emergency departments from a single health system, from which they had 836 adult patients who were discharged from the emergency department with a diagnosis of low back pain. So this means that anybody admitted for low back pain was not going to be included in this study. Now, a full 36% of these patients actually received opioids during their visit to the emergency department. For all comers who received opioids, or those who received IV or IM opioids, they actually had a significantly higher rate of return visits to the emergency department within 30 days compared to those who received NSAIDs, acetaminophen, or some combination of the two. The odds ratios we're talking about here are around 2, so it's not even a small difference. In terms of things that didn't make a difference in terms of return rates were oral opioids, benzodiazepines, or antispasmodics, at least when compared to NSAIDs or acetaminophen. So this study, I mean, doesn't really actually tell us why these patients were more likely to return. But given the surplus of other studies of this type, I'd say it's reasonable to take this as just one more reason not to give opioids for back pain. In a spoonful, patients who received opioids for the control of low back pain in the emergency department were significantly more likely to return to that same emergency department within 30 days with the same complaint compared to those who were given NSAIDs, acetaminophen, or both. And finally, that brings us to our last article, which was titled Prospective Randomized Trial of Standard Left Antrilateral Thoracotomy versus Modified Bilateral Clamshell Thoracotomy Performed by Emergency Physicians out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So now, if you don't have surgical colleagues immediately on hand, and I mean immediately, then some big time life saving procedures are going to fall to you. One of the most dramatic of these procedures is the resuscitative thoracotomy. So usually, in the past at least, this has been done via the left anterior lateral approach, which involves a slash down the left thorax, spreading the ribs, and gaining access to the heart by opening the pericardium, plus or minus clamping the aorta. A somewhat easier way of doing this may be the modified bilateral anterior clamshell approach, which is already favored by many, but let's see some data on it to see what that has to say. So this study was a randomized trial of 16 emergency physicians. About half of them were senior residents, and the other half were already attendings, and all of them were working in a cadaver lab. All of them were trained in both approaches, the left anterior lateral and the modified bilateral clamshell. And then they were randomized to perform one technique first, followed by the other, and they were timed on the delivery of the heart from the pericardium, plus 100% cross-clamping of the thoracic aorta. So between the two groups, there was no significant difference in success rates. Though the modified clamshell was successful 67% of the time, and the left anterolateral was only successful 40% of the time. If you look at the subset of attending physicians, then there was a significantly higher success rate in this group, at least with the modified bilateral clamshell technique. So in terms of safety, 100% of the left anterior lateral approaches would have resulted in iatrogenic injuries. This dropped to just 67% with the modified clamshell approach. So the bilateral clamshell might be safer and as another plus overwhelmingly the participating doctors preferred to do the clamshell as well. So in a spoonful the modified bilateral anterior clamshell thoracotomy technique was as fast as the left anterolateral thoracotomy technique if not faster and resulted in less atrogenic injuries and was even favored by emergency physicians and that was our last article you know the idea to do wrap-ups at the end I actually a little bit stole from emergency medicine cases but i love that podcast too so let's do a quick wrap-up first off we had our leadership 101 course part two which addressed the importance and benefits of emotional intelligence then from the second article we had a retrospective study which seemed to show that a had no worse outcomes than giving a fluoroquinolone with metronidazole for treating outpatient diverticulitis From the third article, we saw that inpatient mortality of COPD patients was two to three times higher when the oxygen saturation target was anything other, or rather, I mean anything above, 88 to 92%. Then from the fourth article, step away from the opioids for that low back pain patient. For patients who received opioids for low back pain in the emergency department, They were around twice as likely to return to that AD within 30 days compared to those who received just NSAIDs, acetaminophen, or both. And finally, from the last article, compared with the left anterolateral thoracotomy technique, the modified bilateral anterior clamshell thoracotomy was at least as fast, safer, and preferred by ER doctors. Now then, you've already earned them, and we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education, all the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. And heck, while you're typing away at a computer or you're on your phone or something like that, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. I know I would appreciate it. Thank you very much. And heck, leave one for all the other podcasts you listen to as well. You're provided this stuff for free. Anyways, links to all the articles summarized can be found just where you think they'd be at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feed through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.